I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 24. If you use the church Bible, you're going to find that in page 17. Page 17. Now, in my Bible, this occupies hmm, at least four parts of four pages. So, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to read parts of it as we move through. But uh, keep it open in your lap, and we'll re reference the text of the Scripture. Uh, before we get to uh, talking about it and applying it, let's uh, pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we're asking you to teach us what we do not know. Father, we're asking for you to give us what we do not have. And we're asking that you would make us what we aren't, what you want us to be, but we are not yet. We know that it is accomplished through the proclamation of your word. So, Father, we need your help. We need illumination by your Holy Spirit. We need um, your Spirit to apply these truths to our minds and our hearts. Uh, and we know that we need to have an attitude uh, before you of expectation that you will indeed speak. That somehow, some way, through this process, that we would hear the voice of God above the voice of a mere man. So we're asking that you would do that now. And God, I pray as the proclaimer that you would grant me grace and strength. Bless me in order that um, your people may be blessed by you. Help me to be an effective vessel, not a distracting one, useful in your hands. So we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this uh, section in the, the scriptures is dealing with the the marriage, the, the acquisition of a wife for Isaac. And as I was thinking about marriage, I wonder, do you remember how you met your spouse? Uh, Kathy and I, we met at church. We had the same group of, of friends uh, through high school. Uh, and in our church, there was also at least two other married couples uh, as a result of that connection in our church, part of our peer group. And I think as a Matter of instruction, you know, if you're looking for a spouse. Not a, not a bad place to find one at church. Um, but I wonder, how many marriages here were because your parents set you up? Did that happen to anyone? And even if that was the case, you likely had some measure of veto power, right? Um, especially if the choice your parents made was unappealing, <laughs> Right? We would hold that veto. But then think, what if your marriage was an essential part of God's plan to create and set apart a people group? And that people group whose purpose was to reveal God's saving plan and really the path to blessing for all the nations. Well, then, then you certainly might think differently about who chooses. I think we'd agree. Well, that was the case for the story of how, how Abraham secured a wife for his son Isaac. And that's really our focus here in Genesis chapter 24. The story is about the fact that Isaac gets a wife, but it's beyond that. It's really a story about how, how God 
ensured that his promise to Abraham was kept for his sake, for the sake of his people, but also for our sake this morning. Now, as we think about Genesis, I want to remind you that it's part of the, the, the first five books of the Bible as, as really a unity, a single work that the Holy Spirit gave through Moses. The initial audience for, this, for these five books of the Bible was the Israelite nation. Uh, with Canaan, the land of Canaan in sight, that's the very land that the Lord had promised to give Abraham's descendants. Through this writing, through this collection of writings, they were told of the Lord's faithfulness, faithfulness in keeping his promises. Those promises that began with Adam were passed down through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons and the tribes. And then under the prophetic leadership of Moses, these tribes, these sons of Israel became constituted as a nation. And here they are standing at the precipice of Canaan, the land promised to them. And as the Lord told them, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Exodus 6, 7. God's promise to Abraham for all of this was unilateral. God called Abraham from idolatry, from living in Ur among pagans and idolaters and idol worshipers, and then through Haran. And he told him, and we talked about this several weeks ago, he gave him this promise, Genesis 12 said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that promise was to be fulfilled through a particular son born to Abraham through his wife, Sarah, namely Isaac. But understand that that promise fulfilled through Isaac, that was really part of a, a larger and earlier promise. That promise made to Adam and Eve of the woman's seed bruising the head of the serpent and then as a result reversing the curse on creation. And as you re will recall, Eden was lost because of man's sin. But that seed of the woman would vanquish one day, vanquish the tempter, that serpent, and then restore the land as well as the intimate fellowship that man once enjoyed with God. Big picture. So here as we come to, to chapter 24 and look at this story, uh, just something to note here is that it really could stand out as a story on its own. I would encourage you uh, after worship today, take some time and read it in its entirety, just all of Genesis chapter 24. Well, one commentator described this as a, a novella, a short story. Like I said, I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but I want to summarize it uh, initially, and then I will dive into particular parts and provide greater summary and then give you some specific texts a little later on. But here's the big picture. Abraham is old. He's not yet secured a wife for Isaac. And of course, that's necessary, right? Isaac needs a wife if, if the Lord is going to fulfill his promise to make a nation. He needs offspring. For Isaac to have offspring, he needs a wife. Abraham sends his most trusted servant to his relatives, and this is presumably back in Haran. That's to the north, northeast of where they are in Canaan. This is where Haran is where his father Terah had died. It's where he had received the calling from the Lord to go to Canaan. 
This servant, Abraham, puts under an oath to find a, a wife for Isaac among those relatives, nowhere else. The servant asks the Lord for favor and discovers Rebekah. After meeting the servant and hearing the story, Rebecca fam Rebecca's family approves of what the servant tells them about Abraham and Isaac and, and of Abraham's wealth. Rebecca then returns to Canaan and becomes Isaac's wife. That's chapter 24. Now, as we unpack this story, I want to do so under three headings and, and make some application for us today in, in light of the, the, the greater uh, objective in view here. God is fulfilling his promise through providing a wife for Isaac. So here's some headings uh, that I want to use to kind of organize some thoughts today. First of all, the first heading, what Abraham knows. Second, what God does. And third, what Isaac receives. What Abraham knows, what God does. And third, what Isaac receives. First, what Abraham knows. How do you know what you know? So if you're, if you're looking to resolve a conflict, how do you know how to do that? If, if you want to train your children, how do you do your job? How do you take a road trip to the East Coast? You know what you know, right? This is obvious through observation, through experience, and, and as believers, through revelation. Simple learning, right? What you've learned, eventually you apply to future decisions. And that's wisdom, right? Maturity is simply the application of knowledge gained through observation, through experience, and through revelation. That knowledge applied to the situation at hand. And what Abraham knows matters greatly for this story. Chapter 24, verse 1. Look at our Bible text this morning. 24 verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And I'll stop there. So what, is, what does Abraham know? <laughs> he knows that he is old. Now, I, I don't think that takes any special knowledge to figure that out. That's purely experiential. He is old, which is a, a statement of, of, like an absolute statement. He is old. Now, I feel like I'm getting older, but I'm not ready to say I am old. Some people are willing to admit they're old. I'm not willing to admit that yet. I'm getting older. I start to see things break down. It, of course, it's experiential. I don't think anybody had to reveal it to it. The Lord didn't have to say, hey, Abraham, you're old. Nobody had to say, Abraham, you're old. He knows he's old. He's lived a long life. He's experienced much in terms of God's blessing and provision along the way. But that he is old, he understands that he has left an important task undone. He's got to the, near the end of his life, and something is not finished which is finding a wife for his son Isaac. Second, Abraham knows that he is blessed. You see, when the Lord called Abraham, the Lord told him, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. He knows he is blessed. That blessing was, of course, realized in the fact that the Lord gave him the son. After many years of waiting, the promise was given to him. After many years, and finally he's blessed with a son. That was a promise made and a promise kept. Now, God tested that faith as we discovered uh, a few weeks ago, God tested that faith in, in uh, calling Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, a test. God never intended him to follow through with that. Abraham's faith in the Lord was confirmed as God then provided a substitute. He knows he's blessed. Abraham enjoyed the blessing of God's 
very direct guidance and direction. Now, Abraham's blessing, of course, was also material. And by now, Abraham had great wealth. We see that in the text. And that wealth, I would suggest, would be instrumental in, very, uh, in the very act of securing a wife for Isaac. Now, I don't doubt in his mind that Abraham made the connection between the word the Lord had spoken and all that he experienced. Abraham knew he was blessed. And let me just stop there. God's call upon your life, if he has called, him, called you to himself in faith, God's call on your life always means blessing. If you've been called, as I said, to faith in God through Jesus, then you are enjoying God's blessing. Now, that blessing may not be material, and I would suggest often it is not. But when God calls someone to himself, God blesses her. God blesses him. Hear what Ephesians says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, present tense, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That's the motivation, right? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you are blessed. Know that. Go back to Abraham. He knows that his son needs a wife. Of course, this is obvious. Simple procreation, right? For God's promise of a great nation, there has to be a wife. But where would he find a wife for his son Isaac? And certainly in his mind, not among the Canaanites. Well, why? They're local. Surely there is an attractive maiden among them. Someone who would be, whose family would be happy to unite her with Abraham's family. But that could never be. Abraham knows something else. Abraham knows that Canaan is cursed. Now, Canaan is a collection of tribes living in the land where he is sojourning. Canaan is cursed, all of those people. Now, no doubt, he received this knowledge as it was passed from his father and his father before him. And in fact, back 10 generations to Noah, who uttered the divine pronouncement, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Canaan was cursed. Now, Abraham, of course, is descended from Shem. And that same curse upon Canaan, the son of Ham, is the very reason for the Lord's blessing upon the line of Shem, from whom he is descended. Now, he knows that. That's knowledge. That's revelation. That came down through his fathers. But he also knows this experientially. Abraham knows Canaan is cursed experientially. He could not soon forget the utter depravity of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You recall that story. Men, according to the scriptures, who were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's Genesis 13, 13. Those, those people of those cities whom the Lord judged by, by raining fire and brimstone upon them, really reducing them to a heap of ashes. 
after rescuing Lot from among them. Abraham knew that Canaan was cursed, and he had seen with his own eyes the depravity of those around him. He certainly could not get a wife for Isaac there. Again, pause for some application here. Christian, the Bible tells us that we should know some things. We need to understand that the, the culture around us may not be exactly like the Canaanites, but it's wicked. And we see that on display all the time. That's why the Bible tells us that we're not to be conformed to the world. We're not to be like the world, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But rather that we should be transformed. We should be different than them by the renewing of our minds. And when that happens, we can indeed know the will of God. We can't be like the culture around us. We must be set apart. We must be holy as the Lord our God is holy. We must, after the example of Jesus, walk in love. We must, after the instruction of Jesus, love one another. After the instruction of Jesus, we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're to be different from the world around us. And since we're on the topic of marriage, are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about marriage if you're not? And if you are thinking about it, does it matter who you marry? And what kind of criteria do you apply? Is, is he or she attractive? Is he a good provider? Does she have a nice personality? And, and I can't assume this anymore in the broader culture. Is that person of the opposite sex? <laughs> right? we, we need to make that clear. Now, those are important criteria, of course. But I'll say that those things, as important as they are, they're really secondary to matters of faith. The question, if you're contemplating marriage, does that person share your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord? Is he or she growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Start there. Make that point of criteria number one. And then everything else. Secondly, start, you know, with gender. Then after that, everything else, right? It matters who you marry. You see, ignoring that essential compatibility criterion for marriage, that will lead to grief, but it is in fact sinful. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness, has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's a rhetorical question. None. None. Well, back to our story. Abraham knows that he cannot find a wife for his son among the Canaanites. So from where? From what people? And this leads us to another thing that Abraham knows. He knows he has relatives. And we see that in what he says to his servant. He instructs them. This is verse 3 and 4. Tells a servant, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So where, where is Abraham's country and kindred and how did he know he had relatives there? Now that may seem like an obvious question to you. And for all of us who, who have relatives in other parts of the world with modern communication and technology, most of us are well aware, even if we've had direct contact, we know where our relatives are living. We know if they're well, if they're alive or not. But 
when Abraham followed the Lord's calling, go, leave your country and your kindred, he was told. That decision led him away from his family of origin. So there was every reason to believe and to assume that there would be little likelihood of ever, ever seeing them again. But then in the purpose of God, we see Abraham and we see why he knew that he had relatives. And this is back in chapter 22. We didn't deal with this a few weeks ago. Um, chapter 23, sorry, chapter 23, verse 20. It was told to Abraham that he had relatives. It was told to Abraham. And we don't know who told Abraham. It was a direct revelation from the Lord. We don't know that. I think the text would tell us if it was so. But someone reported to him. And it doesn't matter who, but he learned. Back in Genesis chapter 22, behold, it's 22, not 23. Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Kesed, Hazo, Hildash, Jidlab, Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Oh, there's a name we know. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Now, back in 22, it seemed like this thing was tacked on after the story of how Abraham and his faith was tested in, in the, the command, bring Isaac, your son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And this, this, this sits there right at the end. I think, what's it doing there? Well, now we know. So, if you think of some application. Christian, what do you know? You know a lot of things, but, but do you know the promises of God? And let me be more specific. Do you know the gospel? I, I meet people who profess to be believers in Jesus all the time, but they struggle to explain to me why they're saved. Do you know the gospel? Do you know that Jesus is the divine Son of God who took upon himself a human body? Do you know that he lived sinlessly before God and man? Do you know that we, being sinners, cannot approach a holy God, and in fact are condemned for our sin before a holy God? Do you know that Jesus died on the cross? Do you know why he did it? Do you know that he died on the cross for your sins? so that the full payment could be made before God the Father. The righteous wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God for you. Do you know that he did that for you? Do you know that he rose again on the third day? And that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you? Do you know the gospel? Do you know why you're in the family of God? Do you know that you have been blessed eternally in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? And do you understand the state of the world around you? Do you look upon the world, and not in a way of judgment? We're, we're judged along with the world if we're standing, you know, trying to be righteous before God in our own stead. We are. But now that you've been called to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, do you see, do you see what you've been called out of? The wicked trajectory that's leading to an eternity separated from God and eternal torment in hell. Do you see the world around you? And in spite of the good things that happen, evidences of God's 
common grace when medical technologies come along and chemotherapies for cancer and a vaccine that used to work and all kinds of things, right? Good things happen, but the trajectory of the world is for Christless eternity. Do you know that? Do you know that you've been called not out of the world, but to remain in the world and be salt and light, pointing to Christ through your good works? And do you know who your relatives are? And I don't mean your blood family. Not human blood relatives. What I mean, I'm talking about the family of God, the ones to whom you are related by the blood of Jesus. Do you know who they are? Do you find fellowship and companionship and friendship among fellow believers? You need them. We need each other. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we're not to forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. But in, when we do gather, we are encouraged. We are stirred up to love and good works as we together wait for the day, the day of Christ's return. Are you committed to those blood relatives by, by joining, linking arms like we showed this morning, these up here who said, yeah, I'm with you. I'm part of the church. You demonstrated your love for the brothers and sisters by covenanting together. What Abraham knew, what you know, what matters. Well, second, I want to focus on what God does, what God does. Well, if you've, uh, if you've been reading your Bible, you know what God has already done, right? We worked through the beginning of this uh, as we tackled Genesis, created the universe. He created everything in it, and he created all the creatures, and he created you and me. That's past tense. That's already done. But what is God doing now? What is God doing now? God is working to accomplish his saving purposes in the world in order to exalt Jesus, his son. That's what God is doing now. He's accomplishing his saving purposes in the world in order to exalt Jesus, his son. Well, Abraham made a plan. He made a plan to find a wife for Isaac. And he sent a servant under oath to execute that plan. But as we all see, it was God who was ultimately working. And we can see what happens. When Abraham's servant arrives in Haran, he arrives at the well belonging to Abraham's relatives. He prays, and here we are in verse 12 now. The servant prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Look how specific the request is. I'm going to go to the well. Now I'm standing here. And, and, and the women of the, the young maidens of the city are going to come out to the well. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I need some water. She's going to say, have some water and I'll water your camels. What a specific request. But he's simply asking the Lord for, for God to be favorable to Abraham's plan. And what happens? Now, I'm going to summarize some, some parts of the scripture reasonably quickly. Verses 15 through 21. What happens in response to that prayer? 15 to 21, everything unfolds with Rebekah just as his Abraham's servant asked of the Lord. 
gave him water. She watered the camels. Verses 22 through 28. There, Abraham's servant finds out that her name is Rebekah. He finds out there that she is the daughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor's son, Bethuel. So, Rebekah is the grand-niece, great-niece, not sure, to Abraham. However you describe it. His brother's son's daughter. Finds out simply by observation. She is beautiful. Somehow he knows she has never known a man in the biblical sense. He then gives expensive gifts to Rebecca, a gold nose ring, gold bracelets. He asks, Rebecca, is there room in your father's house for me to lodge? He tells Rebecca then about Abraham and about all the story of who Abraham is and Isaac. There, Rebecca enthusiastically offers to bring Abraham's servant back to her family. Now, verse 29. Here, we're introduced to Rebecca's brother, Laban. Now, we're going to find out more about him later. He's going to be an important character later with Isaac's son, Jacob. But Laban comes to the well, and he likewise extends hospitality to Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant, before he even accepts Laban's invitation to come back, insists on telling him about his mission. Abraham's servant tells Laban he's on a mission to secure a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. He tells him there that Abraham is a wealthy man and that he has given everything to Isaac. Now we get to verse 42. The servant tells the whole story of how his prayer to the Lord was answered in Rebekah. Now at this point, all that the servant needs to know is if they would agree to his marriage proposal on Abraham's behalf. That's all he needs to know. I'm not going to enjoy your food. I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to do anything. Just tell me, are you with me on the plan? Because if they're not, he's going to be free from his oath to Abraham and he'd simply be on his way. Verse 50 through 60. Laban and his father, Bethuel, agree. And here's what they say, verse 50. The thing has come from the Lord. The thing has come from the Lord. Referring to Rebekah. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And so they permit Rebekah to go with Abraham's servant and become Isaac's wife. Now at this point, the servant presents Rebekah with costly gifts, and he also gives costly gifts to her, her brother and mother. Now, the servant of Abraham wants, wants to get this job done quickly, so he wants to leave. He wants to forego the, the customary uh, period of celebration, 10 days. And really, the only thing preventing uh, them from leaving is Rebekah. So the family asks her, do you want to go? Do you want to forego all of the, the celebration? She says, yep. Ready to go. So she's convinced. Verse 60. And they, that's Rebecca's family, blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now that blessing speaks to some divine knowledge, some revelation in the moment that they're getting it. God is doing something here. Then Rebekah and her young woman, verse 61, arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. 
Thus, the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So, quick summary of, of that whole section. So again, Abraham sent his most trusted servant under oath to find a wife for Isaac among the relatives. The servant goes and finds success when he meets Rebekah and her family. Abraham acted, did he not? Abraham's servant acted. Rebekah and her family acted. But in all of this, I think you can see it. God was ultimately the one working. And all of the actors seem to recognize that. They are doing things. But God is doing the big thing. Abraham planned. But that plan was already informed by God's promise, and he found success. Abraham's servant found success and was able to keep his oath to Abraham. Rebekah's family was convinced that the plan was from the Lord. Now think about this. Could any of this have happened apart from the providential working of the Lord? The overwhelming evidence draws us to the conclusion that God works, that God is always working. Again, from the text, God worked to affirm Abraham's servant. He already affirmed Abraham's plan, but let's, let's just go from the, what's happening in the text. He affirmed Abraham's servant. God was working to convince Rebekah and her family. God was working ultimately to vindicate Abraham's plan. Each of them did things in this process. Each of them acted in a particular way. According to uh, Baker's Bible Dictionary, providence, that word, it's the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all for the glory of God. This story is an example of God's providence, God divinely working guiding in everything. So, because God works, we, his people, we plan and we act, but we do so trusting that he will work. Look again at Abraham's plan. I, I don't want you to look at this and, and, and find uh, a, a blueprint for finding the perfect spouse. Right? Don't, don't do that, Right? God didn't even tell Abraham how to find a wife for his son. God didn't tell him that, at least not from the text. Abraham simply wanted to honor the Lord, and so God's promises informed his plan. What the Scripture teaches us is that as his people, we are called to walk in obedience while we keep his promises in view. Those promises informed our thinking and acting and doing. And I know this is a question faithful Christians always ask. They want to know, how do I follow God's will? It's a question I asked as a young man so many times. How do I follow God's will? And of course, I had in view life decisions. But if you've trusted in Christ, if you are resting on God's promise that your sins have been forgiven because Jesus died, if your hope for eternal life is in the resurrected Son of God, how do you live every single day with that? And I get the questions. Do I, do I take this job or that one? Do I move to this city or another? Do I stay in the military or do I, until retirement? Do I get out early? Should I join this church or another? Should I go to college or not? Should I buy a house or rent? Should we homeschool? 
Should we serve, send the kids to private Christian school or public school? A myriad, a myriad of important life decisions that the Bible simply doesn't address when we open the book, right? So what do we do? Make our decisions based as best you can on what is right and wise, informed by the Scripture, informed by prayer, and then simply trust. Trust that God will accomplish His purposes in you and through you. Now, that doesn't take all of the anxiety out of the, the question, right? Uh, a dear brother, some years ago, a member of this church, he moved away um, after he took a job in another state. He asked me the question as he was considering retirement. He said, I got this option here in Omaha. I got this option in Texas. What should I do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're both equal decisions. He said, well, what if I take this one and it's wrong? I said to him, and I've said it ever since, there's no what if with God. There's just what is. There's just what is. And if something about that decision proved to be maybe less than what you found out about the other decision you might have made, I said to him, if you did it in the right way, you subjected the decision to the scriptures, if you prayerfully considered it, you sought wise counsel, if you kept the promises of God in sight, then just own it. Just own it. It's not the mistake. So this is what, um, what helps, right? Romans 8. It's an often go-to for understanding providence. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. That's capital S, the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit, Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit's at work here. He searches hearts. He knows the minds of the Spirit. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That's providence. And that all things is all things. And listen, comfort yourself with this truth, and it's not permission to be an idiot. But if you make some boneheaded and even sinful decision, that's included somehow miraculously in all things. Because all things doesn't exclude anything, does it? Again, not permission to do something sinful, but even in, even in something careless and sinful and rebellious, God, for His own, works in all things. We work, you work, we, we do stuff. So get busy, live your life, live in submission to God's Word, love and serve God, love and serve others, seek to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, and just trust that God will somehow enfold what you do whether that is for good or for bad, he will unfold that into his, uh, into his own purposes for his own glory and ultimately for your eternal good. This is what Paul says to the Philippians about working. Work out your own salvation. That doesn't mean work for your salvation. Work out the salvation that you have. Live your life in light of the salvation that you have. 
And he gets where the power comes from. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, finally, let's get to the last heading here, more briefly. What Isaac receives. What Isaac receives. And as a pastor, I have uh, counseled and officiated quite a few marriages over the years. Now, I've worked hard to to help these couples understand what the Scripture says about marriage, how it is an ordinance, a creation ordinance, something given by God, even before the fall. It's for all creation. And then how marriage is is a picture of God's covenant love for His people. And I talk to these couples about covenant, what that means. We work through goals. We learn how vitally important forgiveness is in marriage, how it's essential. Now, like I said, I, I've done a fair number of these, and I, I so thoroughly love helping couples see marriage through, through a biblical lens, through the scriptures. But I can honestly say, in all of my counsel on marriage, I've never used Genesis 24. I've just avoided that one. And, and there's some oddities about it, right? Because up to this point in the story, we haven't even encountered Isaac. Abraham makes a plan, sends a servant, goes to get a wife. Where's Isaac? We've heard about the plan, right? Servant's oath. We've met Rebecca. We've met her brother and father. We don't even know from the text if, if Isaac was aware of his father's plan in advance. And now, the wedding. So let me read from verses 62 to 67. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. That's in the southern part of the land. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, if you've got your Bible open, look at verses 66 and 67. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent. We don't know what's happening between these two verses. Was Abraham there? Was there some kind of celebration? We don't know. But in the end, it's perfect. Why? Because God provided a wife for Isaac. It was unusual, to be sure. Unusual, but perfect. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Yeah, men say amen. (laughs) Who finds a wife, finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord? I I quote that almost every time I do a wedding message. It's true. Isaac obtained favor from the Lord in three ways. Rebecca became Isaac's wife. And notice the text says, and he loved her. He loved her. Isaac was 40 years old, and, and we're introduced to him again here. This is the second time we, we effectively have something that's happening with him, not just told about him, right? First occasion is, is where he's 
talks to his father, where's the sacrifice? And now we're fast forwarding, he's 40 years old. He's 40 years old. And and he's meditating, the scripture tells us. Perhaps he'd been praying. Perhaps he'd been grieving. At 40 years old, and find me somebody to love. Somebody, somebody, find me somebody to love. Sorry. Yes, the Lord has found somebody for Isaac to love. The Lord has provided. That's no small thing, is it? But that's just a piece of it. I mean, Isaac getting a wife, a companion for the rest of his life, one that the Lord set apart for him. But he gets more. He gets comfort, we're told in the text. Now, Sarah had died, his mother. She was buried. That was the last chapter. And as her only son, they probably had, and I'm just guessing here, a special bond. And he had been meditating, as the scripture says, in the field in the evening. But maybe he was just trying to comprehend all all that he knew from his father about God's promises. We don't know, again. We can only speculate. But we're told he was comforted. He found peace. He found a sense of, this is good. This is right. Whatever turmoil, again, comfort assumes that there had been some prior turmoil, some, some sense of discomfort. He found comfort. But I think the greatest thing that he received here is simply the joy, the joy of having been the object of God's grace. Now, again, the text doesn't tell us how or that it's even what he felt. But I I just, as I read this, how could he not have had joy? Again, hearing the story from Abraham's servant, God did this. I mean, Abraham sends him. He prays this crazy, very specific prayer, and God answers it just like dead on. Not a generalized, oh, I think that's probably the answer to prayer. No, but that's her. So he's seeing this divine act told to him before his eyes. And that's got to be the source of joy. That God had intervened in his life, not only for, for his own sake, for Abraham's sake, but also for the sake of future generations that he wouldn't know. And ultimately, inasmuch as he understood the promise of God going all the way back to Abraham, sorry, going all the way back to Adam, that through him, through his son and his children's sons, and at some point in the future, the very promise of God of that serpent-crushing seed, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would be revealed. That had to be had to be cause for joy. So Christian brothers and sisters, here we are. We're on the other side of that promise, aren't we? And we can look back to the revelation of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, son of God. In all, this story shows us how God providentially worked to fulfill his promises. What Abraham knew and acted on were were truths that God had already declared. Abraham's plan would never have succeeded unless God intervened. And in the end, Isaac, who is the child of the promise, he personally experienced the joy of being included in God's promise. Again, in all of these things, God was working. And that is true 
for you, Christian brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in God's promise in Christ. Think back to the way you came to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Think about the way that you came to believe that his death and resurrection were the ground of your forgiveness and eternal life. Think about that and the joy and the comfort of knowing that you're an object of his grace. All of these are from God. Trust you revel in that today. Let's pray. Father, you're working. As we sang earlier, you're sovereign over us. And that sovereign providential plan is worked out in pain. It's worked out in good times. It's worked out. You will ultimately accomplish your purpose of bringing us home to you. Thank you for opening our eyes to your grace. Thank you for the promise in your scriptures from the very beginning revealed ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, your son. And thank you that you opened our eyes, you opened our hearts to give us faith in him, that we might be called to you and enjoy fellowship with you for an eternity. God, we pray with these promises in view, hold us faithful to the day of Christ's appearing. We ask it in his name.